0: It's February 4th, 2015, and welcome to another edition of Bite Marks Cafe, where we serve you the first bite of today's technology. I'm Bert Lum.
1: And I'm Ran Ozawa. First, we'll cover some local science and tech stories, including some upcoming events. Randy Kosaki will tell us about his upcoming lecture for the Waikiki Aquarium. Then Ben Trevino will tell us about a unique talk coming to Kaka'ako Agora.
0: Finally, we'll talk about the intersection of storytelling and technology. We've invited Brett Opegard and Jennifer Winter from the UH College of Social Science to tell us all about it.
1: Have your questions and thoughts ready to call in, or you can tweet us on Twitter. But first, the headlines.
0: Researchers from the University of Hawaii at Manoa are part of a team that yesterday announced the discovery of a new species of microbe hidden beneath the ocean crust two miles below sea level, and the microbes apparently survive by breathing sulfate rather than oxygen. The discovery was based on years of work by the late James Cohen, a professor with the UH Department of Oceanography who passed away in 2013. He designed a seafloor sampling system that allowed scientists to study ocean crust without contamination from the journey back to the surface.
1: The new species of microbes which have yet to be classified and named get their energy through reactions between sulfate and organic carbon containing compounds. They live in the massive aquifers of porous rock beneath the ocean. Though remote, these aquifers are thought to contain as much as a third of the world's biomass. The microbes were identified using DNA sequencing, which the researchers used to demonstrate that there is a lot of unique life in this mysterious and massive biome.
0: These microbes live on sulfate, a compound of sulfur and oxygen that occurs naturally in seawater. The microbes are thought to be some of the oldest types of organisms on Earth, found more easily in the marshes and hydrothermal vents. But uh, sampling them beneath the ocean's crust is a large, uh, huge challenge. Uh, Michael R- R- Rapave, um, associate researcher at the Hawaii Institute of Marine Biology, said in a statement. That's uh, what makes this uh, recent work exciting. While we suspected it in the past, we now have DNA sequencing data linking sulfate reduction in some of these and new, new and novel microorganisms. Now, when I was uh, looking at this uh, story, what was kind of interesting is this device that they called Cork, mm-hmm. which is the Circulation Obviation Retrofit Kit. But basically, it's a uh, a, a special device that this guy James Cohen kind of helped perfect about. Try not bring up the sample without getting it contaminated by you know the ocean water as it, it's brought back up to the surface. Or even while
1: it's taking the sample, it's not being con- uh, contaminated mm-hmm. by seawater. So it's it's unique in terms of getting two miles under there and then getting into this this material. But it was impressive to hear that this these under, underwater uh, under sea aquifers contain so much sea life, but they mm-hmm. weren't able to quantify it in part because these aren't your standard organisms. They say you know the forest floor on land you have microbes that break down leaf. And organic matter, but at the at the depths that we're talking about here in the ocean, there's no oxygen to to make those reactions take place. So they're using this this sulfate.
0: Well, and of course, this kind of leads to the uh, possibility of life on other planets, perhaps that right, don't, they have, they don't oxygen. have oxygen.
1: Absolutely. Right. Well, common sense says that you shouldn't post anything to Facebook that you wouldn't want your boss to see. But given that common sense isn't especially common, a bill before the Hawaii State Legislature this session hopes to set some boundaries. The House Committee on Labor and Public Employment yesterday considered a bill that would prohibit employers from requiring or even asking employees and potential employees to give them access to personal account usernames and passwords.
0: The bill focuses on content posted to social media that isn't explicitly public, but Still shared with friends or groups, an employer or potential employer could get access by asking the employee to hand over their login credentials or ask the employee or coworker to log in while they're present. Uh, but the proposed law says that it will not interfere with legitimate investigations into work related employee misconduct or alleged disclosure of an employer's confidential or proprietary information.
1: The Chamber of Commerce of Hawaii submitted testimony opposing the bill, saying that no Hawaii employers make such demands. The group said that the bill seems to be addressing a problem that does not exist and by doing so places an additional burden on Hawaii's businesses. The bill did pass out of committee yesterday after the bill was amended based on input from the Hawaii Civil Rights commission commission director william hoshijo told the associated press that employers probably also access the publicly accessible stuff all the time even though they shouldn't
0: well you know this uh, bill sounds very familiar or similar to a bill that was um uh, I, I guess introduced so. last se- session right I'm, I'm, I'm curious it didn't pass last session why does it keep well there's
1: uh, just like there are stories that uh, that kind of harness the uh, hysteria or c- concerns about drones mm-hmm. that's also been in the news lately um, Basically, there is this uh, this belief that an employer says, hey, before I evaluate you for this job, can I see your Facebook page? You know you're not posting publicly, but we want to make sure that you're an upstanding citizen, that you're not going to be a threat to our company. Uh, whether or not this actually happens, this law is trying to prevent mm-hmm, that from happening. Mm-hmm. But I'm kind of on the side of the Chamber of Commerce saying, I don't think that that's a regular practice. And frankly, if an employer asks you for that, that's not a company worth working for.
0: Right. I mean, it's almost like them asking for your age or something. I mean, it's you know, it's private information. Well, but... that, I
1: thought that the, that's what the, the point that the Civil Rights, uh, Civil Rights Commission uh, spokesperson, the director, was saying was that already you kind of run into a hairy area when it's posted completely publicly I'm posting that here's my wife here's my kids uh, we go to a Buddhist temple mm-hmm, We mm-hmm. these are all protected classes that you shouldn't be able to discriminate somebody saying that I only want to hire Christians or something mm-hmm, so if that's mm-hmm.
0: going to be an issue then even this is mm-hmm. going a step further than right. that well, finally, we want to move on to the uh, tech calendar. If you uh, recent or have really loved WordPress in the past, and of course you want to spend Valentine's Day at a conference on Maui dedicated to the immensely popular web content management system, WordCamp Maui is taking place on February 13th and 14th over at the University of Hawaii Maui College. Saturday's program will feature 16 sessions and two workshops focused on, uh, on the variety of different tracks. For more information, of course, you can visit... 2015.maui.wordcamp.org. It's been years since Hawaii's had a WordCamp,
1: so I'm glad there is one, but Mm -hmm. Maui on Valentine's Day might be a little tricky. Mm -hmm. If you love science, you should know about the monthly Honolulu Science Cafe event. This month's meetup will be held on Tuesday, February 17th at JJ's Bistro in Kaimu Key. There's a featured speaker every month. This month, it's Andy Kaufman from the UH College of Tropical Agriculture, who will talk about the power of plants in our lives. The social dinner hour is at 6 p.m. with the talk starting at 7 p.m. And for more information, you can visit hi-sci.org.
0: And now joining us is uh, Randy Kosaki from NOAA, and he's here to tell us about a talk sponsored by the Waikiki Aquarium. Welcome to the show, Randy.
2: Oh, aloha, guys. Thanks for having me.
0: Now, this, uh, this talk has been uh, getting quite a bit of uh, attention. I mean, it's, a, it's sort of this distinguished speaker series. We're and glad to have a distinguished yeah. speaker here in the studio. Well, well, I don't uh, know you're about distinguished, <laughs> but I will be speaking. But uh, you're, you're talking about the uh, some of the discoveries, I guess, I guess happening up in the uh, Papahanaumokuakea Reserve, and, and what's, uh, what's interesting happening up there?
2: Well, we've got quite a bit going on. Um, I think for For a lot of folks, it's going to be an Mm eye-opener. A lot of people don't even realize that there's another 1,200 miles to our archipelago beyond Ni'ihau. But two-thirds of our archipelago is uninhabited, remote coral reef habitat. So we have 140,000 square miles of ocean, and most of it's very poorly explored. Mm -hmm. So I'll be talking about some of the so-called technical diving that we've been doing to explore the deep coral reef habitat. And this is like regular scuba gear on steroids. Now, regular uh, scuba divers, recreational or even scientific, uh, usually don't go much past 80 or 100 feet. And yet the coral reef habitat goes as deep as 350 or 400 feet. So we're trying to explore that deeper half of the coral reef habitat.
0: Mm-hmm. Now, you know, we had a, a couple of people from Bishop Museum come on and talk about rebreathers and going sort of into deeper depths. Uh, This is something that you guys normally do at NOAA, right?
2: That's exactly what we're doing. In fact, we are working with the Bishop Museum, and we are using these so-called closed-circuit rebreathers. And this is what allows us to stretch our gas supply, go a little deeper, because you don't exhale bubbles away with every breath. The rebreather recycles the gas, adds oxygen as necessary, and so you can stay much longer with a small supply of gas on your back. Mm-hmm. Now, last week's show was a really interesting one focused on the Hawaii Undersea Research Laboratory, which got its
1: funding uh, from NOAA at, in the past, and they've also done work in the monument as well.
2: That's correct. They've done the very deep work. So there's been a lot of work done on shallow reefs, and the Hawaii Undersea Research Lab has worked probably at depths of five or 600 feet down to 3,000 feet. But there's kind of that no-man's land between... Uh, Scuba divers and submersibles that's very poorly explored. Mm -hmm. Now, submersibles could work that depth range, but sub time costs about $40,000 a day. So if you rent a sub, you're going to go as deep as you can, not as shallow as you can. So there's a little unexplored niche uh, Mm -hmm. left for us technical divers, and that's between regular scuba and submersibles.
0: How frequently do you have, uh, let's say, research projects going out uh, to this area?
2: Uh, it's a remote area. Uh, to get to the northern end of the chain, it's a five-day sail. Mm-hmm. So it's not somewhere you'd go for just a day or two and come back. So generally, we'll get one, maybe two month-long cruises every year.
0: Now, I'm curious, uh, maybe because we cover a lot of the stories happening up in the, you know, the reserve, we seem to think that uh, you know there's uh, not only a lot happening, but there's some coverage of it. But are you are you feeling that perhaps for the general public, uh, th- these distinguished speaker series is, is ways of getting the information out to the general public? I think so.
2: I think there's a lot of uh, interest in our community in the ocean. We are a very ocean-oriented community mm-hmm. here in Hawaii, and there are parts of the ocean that are not very well explored. So some of these distinguished speaker lectures have been like Dr. Carl Meyer uh, talking about shark tagging, shark tracking, which is always of interest especially given that there seems to be an upswing in the number of shark attacks recently. And Papahanaumokuakea, I think it's uh, an uphill outreach battle for us because a lot of people don't realize that two-thirds of the Hawaiian archipelago is a marine national monument.
1: Are you going to be talking a little bit about the history of the Marine National Monument itself? In fact, it came into being during the run of this show. It's a relatively recent designation, and it's actually one of the largest such designations
2: on the planet. It is one of the largest marine protected areas on the planet. It's uh, bigger than the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge. It's bigger than 46 of the 50 states. And always, as a background for this kind of talk, I do start with a little background information on the monument, because it is relatively clearly known. Mm-hmm.
0: Are you going to be uh, touching any, uh, on any um, of the issues with uh, coral bleaching that's occurring in some, of the, you know, in some of the reefs around Hawaii?
2: Yeah, that is a big problem. And because we're a monument, we have a very high level of protection. People think, well, everything's good. There's nothing to worry about. Mm-hmm. When in fact, even though we're remote, we're not immune to these threats that originate thousands of miles away. Coral bleaching is a result of global climate change. Marine debris is a big problem, Mm -hmm. and none of that debris comes from the northwestern Hawaiian Islands. Mm -hmm. It comes from populated areas. So even though we're remote, we're not immune to these global problems, and a chance to highlight that is always good. That's great. So, So, Randy, um, where and when can people see and hear your distinguished speaker
1: series on the monument?
2: This will be tomorrow night, Thursday night, at the Mamiya Auditorium on the St. Louis School Campus. And where
1: can they go to find more information about it?
2: Uh, Sponsored by the Waikiki Aquarium, so waikikiaquarium.org will tell you more. Sounds Fantastic. Good. Thanks very much for joining us. Okay,
0: guys. Thanks a lot. And thanks, Randy. And uh, now joining us is Ben Chavino, and he's here to tell us about the uh, k- upcoming talk over at the Kakaaka Agora featuring Hemp Hemphill. So, Ben, well tell done. us well all about done. that. What,
3: well, what is what is Tahir, uh, what is he uh, all about? Well, thanks for having me on. Hi, Bert. Hi, Ryan. And I actually want to first say I can't believe that they're having this Valentine's Day WordPress workshop you, I, you as, really love it. Uh, well, really- no, I, I'm <laughs> I, as a technologist, I'm offended for my whole community that we would be expected to be available on Valentine's <laughs> Day. Uh, but, but okay, moving on to, to here, we are bringing in this amazing artist, uh, amazing artist and technologist who has a project that I first encountered a couple of years ago at a data visualization conference called I/O, uh, and w- it is what it is. Is it's this lyric database of all the rap and hip hop since 1979. Uh, and it's called Hip Hop Word Count. And Tahir's background is as a, in advertising and as a graphic designer. And he's always listened to hip hop as a child and growing up. And it's been a big part of his life. And he started to encounter these questions. He wanted to know, uh, you know who uses the most, who has the deepest vocabulary of all the rappers? Who uses the most complex phrasing? And he had all these questions that he wanted to ask. Because those are the things he used to talk about with his friends. Uh, and when you talk about things with your friends, as I'm sure you know, you can enter these debates that are unwinnable, right? Like you, you start to talk, and people have their opinions, and people's opinions are, are uh, their opinions. Who used
1: a certain turn of phrase first, and things like
3: that. Right, right. And so uh, the the idea behind the database was that it could start to answer some of these unwinnable arguments. Uh, and what's happened with it is it's really taken off. It's gone in, in many directions that I don't think even to hear a new would go off in. And it's an amazing creative project. Uh, it started off as a Kickstarter-funded project. Uh, he crowdfunded it to get some of the initial research done. Uh, he launched a few graphic and data visualization projects off of that. But uh, since that time and since he started going on the speaker circuit talking about it, he's gotten fellowships at Harvard, fellowships at Columbia. Uh, he's crossed over into some physical and light painting with some of the data. He's got uh, some interactive data visualizations online. Uh, and he's done lecture uh, the, done the lecture circuit at different universities like Berkeley and um, the thing that he's doing now is he's running a small school, something he's calling the, the RAP Research Lab, and it's a, it's a program that uses the database uh, to introduce concepts of data queries and, uh, and analysis and brings them to students uh, in maybe in the high school, junior high age. And so what we're hoping to do with our program at Tahir, because I've wanted to bring him to Honolulu through um, our program with the terminal for, for two and a half years now, since 2012, uh, is really introduce his work, uh, hold some of these types of workshops so that people can come in and be engaged and engage with the database and ask their own questions. Uh, and and so there's going to be an event where he does the hands-on workshop, and there will be an event where he talks about his work and demonstrates the, the wide variety of things that he's been able to do now, with the ben,
1: project. Now, Ben, for me, you are my hero of data visualization when you, know, you were previously with the University of Hawaii Economic Research Organization and you can basically take a complex data set and turn it into a graphic that I can understand immediately. And so I really like this idea and instead of you know, he has the benefit of working with rap music rather than, say, I don't know, state government budgets. Right. Um, <laughs> uh, it, it kind of when you talk about this database, is it similar to Rap Genius, which is also a big popular is. database?
3: I I, th- I think it is, and and we'll know more when we see Tahir's work. And I think uh, and I think that'll be a question that we should ask him. Uh,
1: what I what I think is ex- excellent is that he's taking uh, an art form, which is rap music, he turns it into a data set, which sounds nerdy and technical, right. and then from that he can generate visualizations that are in and of themselves
3: also works of art. That's that's exactly right. And and his work in particular, I think, is very innovative. So he he did this one project. It was a collaboration with a Robotics Lab. And uh, what it was was that because all of his rap lyrics are geotagged, he could take the work of a, of a rapper and talk about all the places that they had uh, maybe where they had been, but also where they were talking about. Mentioned. Uh, yeah. And then had the robot draw light paintings of a globe and where those things would have occurred. Mm-hmm. And so it creates these uh, these map oriented type visualizations but they 're also uh they're made by technology by other pieces of technology but they're they're light paintings like you know you might expect Picasso to make uh and it's really incredible work and it's been this huge wellspring of of art innovation as well as technology innovation and so I think the here's work has always inspired me because it's this it's this beautiful demonstration of of how humanistic data can be, how the pursuit and the exploration of data can be this really uh, this thing we would associate with humanities and with with the arts, uh, as opposed to just technology, and and I think that crossover is really where all the meaning is found. So
1: you know, this is a uh, sorry, this is a two two day event, and so how does that break down in terms of what will happen? Great, on the right, yeah,
3: yeah, good question. So so Friday tomorrow night, there's a lot of things happening Friday. So what we wanted to do was was give people a nice way to kick off their evenings. Uh, he's going to be doing an, an interview with David Goldberg, who is a local uh, professor in the in the School of Digital Arts and Humanities at University of Hawaii uh, and specialize in hip hop and specialize in American culture. And David will be interviewing to hear showing some of his work. And it'll be a quick talk to hear. We'll play some, uh, some selections of, of music afterwards. And it'll be a good time people to, to hang out. So that'll go from six to seven Friday night, mm-hmm. I say tomorrow, Friday night, then Saturday to hear, we'll do a full hands-on workshop, uh, with his database that will engage. It'll be a small version of the rap research lab of the school. So people can come in with a variety of skills. If you are, uh, a graphic designer or if you're a programmer or if you're just interested in, in hip hop and in in anything really you can come in bring a laptop and uh, you can start to engage with the database and ask questions and and learn about learn about the work
0: so the I guess the one question I had was uh, you know being kind of an open data uh, wonk I mean are is this database is this RAP database an open database that if people participate uh, you know, on Saturday they can actually access it after uh, Tahir leaves?
3: Uh, you know, I don't know the answer to that question. There, there was an interesting side project that we were interested in developing along those lines, though, and we wanted to... Uh, I think one follow-up project that might come out of this with, with David Goldberg is to catalog all of the hip-hop-related activities that are happening in, in our region. I think we're interested in uh, how hip-hop has impacted our own community. Mm-hmm. And so there are people here that are practicing the various... Uh, Pillars of hip hop, and and I'm not an expert, but this is something that David can speak to on Friday, for for anyone who shows up, and um, I think that would be very interesting. I think that would certainly be certainly be open. I know to database is available online, uh, and the access the, the particulars particulars access I'm not sure about.
0: Okay, gotcha. Sounds good. Okay, so uh, org is where we can find out
3: more. Absolutely, yeah. Go to org or our Facebook page. Uh, there's a Facebook event that you can sign up on, and if you intended to. Uh, attend the workshop on Saturday there's uh, an RCP on Eventbrite
0: Sounds good and uh, thanks uh, thanks Ben and Randy for joining us and, of course, that's what's been happening this week. We'll take a short break, and when we return, we'll be joined by Brett Opegard and Jennifer Winter and talk about new media and journalism. How do new tools and apps help us tell a story and maybe increase understanding. We'd, of course, love to
1: hear your thoughts or questions as part of that conversation. You can give us a call and join us live on the air at 941-3689. That's from Oahu, or if you're on the neighbor islands, 877-941-3689. And
0: we're live in the studio. You can tweet us your questions at ByteMarks or at Hawaii. This is ByteMarks Cafe.
3: On the next Morning Edition, a Chicago housing project that's being rehabbed to bring in some wealthier residents.
1: It's moving the poor out, bringing the rich in, gentrification. We don't care where you go, just get the hell out of here. Also, a look at America's aging transit structure. I'm David Green. here about change from the neighborhood to the nation on the next Morning Edition.
3: We'd say mornings from 5 to 8 on HPR 1.
0: It's been 20 years since network television has had an Asian-American sitcom. What do you think? Long enough? If we can prove that we do have an audience and people that will watch us, it'll hopefully start the ball rolling in terms
3: of finding that Asians can carry a show.
0: I'm Kai Rizdahl, the new ABC series Fresh Off the Boat, next time on Marketplace.
4: This evening at 6, following Bite Marks Café. Support for Bite Marks Cafe comes from the HPR Local Talk Show Fund, which helps Hawaii Public Radio sustain and grow its locally produced talk show programming. Mahalo to contributors Whole Foods Market Hawaii, Ferraro Choi, and Ulupono Initiative. Welcome back to Bite Marks Cafe. I'm Bert
0: Lum. And I'm Ryan Ozawa. And joining us today is Brett Opgard and Jennifer Sunrise-Winter, and of course, Brett is a Assistant Professor in the College of Social Science and teaches multimedia journalism and focuses on new, media, new digital media technologies and their potential as a journalism delivery system.
1: Jennifer meanwhile, is an Associate Professor and Graduate Chair of the School of Communications and focuses on communication policy and planning in ubiquitous network societies.
0: And of course, what new delivery systems hold the most promise for storytelling? And of course, we'd love to hear your questions and comments, and that number to call is 941 on Oahu, or 877- 941-3689 from the neighbor islands. Jennifer and Brett, we want to welcome you both to Bite Marks Cafe. Thank you for having us.
5: Thank you very much.
0: So, you know, Brett, we'll start with uh, uh, a press release that we got about an app that you had uh, worked on and developed, and this sort of revolved around uh, you know, telling stories about what happens on in Yellowstone which is interesting because anybody that visits Yellowstone really it all revolves around Old Faithful. I think uh you know a lot of uh, uh what happens there is is sort of judged by the sort of geyser eruption and it's kind of a periodic thing. So your app came out and and it was an interesting sort of combination of technology and sort of the cultural aspect of Yellowstone. And I'm I'm curious because you know this conversation I think is we have a lot of area to, to cover and but specifically what is it that really kind of drove you to look at this this sort of intersection uh, between sort of culture and technology and specifically how did you get involved with this in Yellowstone?
4: Well, Old Faithful is a, a great centerpiece of one of the most beautiful places on Earth. So. Uh, if you have been there, you know the crowds gather around this hole in the ground and uh, wait every ninety minutes. Um, it, uh, water erupts out, and it's quite a spectacle. So we um, we noticed that people often were just sitting around there, looking at their phones and not really not really learning about the site or doing anything meaningful. And we thought there was a great opportunity there to tell stories about. Uh, geothermal science, uh, the history of the park, and uh, many other um, topics that were ripe for um, storytelling.
1: Mm -hmm. Now, Brett, one of the things that uh, your announcement mentioned was sort of the concept of uh, geyser time. And that's something I think that both Bert and I really responded to because we could imagine that certainly we're in a society today that we, we break down our lives by a solar schedule, by a lunar schedule, right? And that, that sort of makes sense. And this is how we divide things. When you talk about geyser time, you have basically the community within Yellowstone National Park, whether you're talking about the rangers or the gift shop owners, where their, their mileposts throughout the day are these eruptions. And it's not exactly at the top or the bottom of an hour it's very organic or geologic, I guess I should say. So when I can, I could imagine living in that world where the geysers eruptions were where you were, where where Bert would say, "When do you want to meet for lunch?" And I'd say, oh, two geysers from now." Right? <laughs> I mean, I thought that. I mean, is is that kind of also one of the things that you're exploring with this app?
4: It's really interesting at the park the way the um, time has, time systems have been shifted around this eruption moment. Uh, There's been numerous uh, iterations of technology that have been kind of added to this park, sort of like in a bricolage of sandwich boards and, you know, handcrafted wooden signs and, uh, you know, whiteboards. There's all these different uh, pieces of technology communication technology that have been added to the park just so people know when the next eruption is. Mm -hmm. And that's the question that everybody asks when they walk around there. When is Old Faithful going to erupt again? So the park uh, doesn't run on you know what you would consider mountain standard time or um, any other sort of uh, formal time system. Other than when is Old Faithful going to erupt, and that's um, that's how people plan their day. So you know, with uh, with I guess Old Faithful
0: shifting its regularity in terms of eruption, how does it uh, how does that get incorporated into the app, or is it incorporated into the app?
4: The app um, delivers the ranger's prediction for the next eruption. So the the process essentially is the um, ranger has a window that looks out directly over Old Faithful, watches the eruption, and there are, there are variations of the eruption depending on the height of the geyser, mm-hmm. and that dictates um, how long they think the um, period will be between the next eruption. So the ranger looks at the uh, eruption, watches it ends, watch watches it in marks the time down plugs it into the computer and then that data feed um goes into our app through mm. some some uh you know mathematical algorithms and things that we have built into it Oh, I find so that good. fascinating. Yeah. Actually, I, f- I think that's even more fascinating that there's still that human, human component
1: that's factored into everything, so the app is delivering what a human interprets as what the next time would be along with all of the science involved. We're talking to Brett Oppegard and Jennifer Sunrise-Winter about the intersection of technology and storytelling and really uh, new ways of processing uh, society and culture. If you've got a thought, if you want to know when the next eruption might be, I think uh, we can get Brett to pull out his phone, but in any case, if you have a more <laughs> constructive question, you could also call 941-3689 or from the neighbor islands 877-941-3689 now jennifer i liked your introduction where you focus on these uh, ubiquitous network surveillance and structures Mm -hmm. um your your area of research is something that i'm always interested in which is where privacy comes into play particularly when technology becomes more pervasive and we are basically violating privacy uh willingly you know we did a story in our news break about the attempt to legislate whether a company can look at your Facebook profile to determine whether or not to hire you or keep you hired. Uh, what is the uh, what is your current area of research? I mean, what is the the focus that you're you're looking at right now?
5: Well, you've you've hit it on the head. It's ubiquitous network societies, and so it's the idea that around us, data and uh, computational intelligence is pretty much everywhere, and so we're getting uh, a sort of data deluge even more so than when we were talking about that twenty or thirty years ago. And really, some of the most interesting things I think are the ways in which Um, These systems, whether they be the web or the protocols uh, that are within them or within it, uh, uh, the ways in which they can be used to uh, unjustly discriminate against people. And so there's a whole field of sort of data and discrimination, algorithmic biases and so forth that's emerging. And I'm very interested in that because uh, I think most of us think I can take a few steps to protect my privacy. But as more and more data is being collected about us from all sorts of different sources, um, and more importantly, as that data is being analyzed uh, in ways that that uh, even innocuous seeming data can easily be triangulated to say an awful
0: lot about you. Mm-hmm. Now, I'm I'm curious, uh, and I, I like to explore this the idea that you know since you've been teaching the class, uh, you know, having students kind of get an introduction to the internet and sort of this ubiquitous network. I think uh, probably back in the early or late. 90s and early 2000s, there was this whole, I think, uh, uh, euphoria about social media 2.0 and the all you know the idea of, of jumping on to social networks like uh, MySpace or whatever, and and there was just a, a, a genuine, I think, interest on the part of the general public just to just to find out what it's all about. But then now we're into sort of the the <laughs> second decade of the 2000s, and and all of the things that have been. Uh, re, you know, sort of uh, talked about, reported on the news about privacy and you know perhaps even the invasion of privacy by the NSA. Uh, have you seen over the course of time sort of the change in students' perception or, or interest in participating in the internet uh, from that point in 2000 to now in 2015, where you know maybe it's not as as uh, as interesting to them as it was back then. Absolutely, but
5: although one thing I would say is that a lot of times I think people just become fatigued. So they say, why do I even bother? Once they find out how much data is being collected about them, they, it's sort of a futile effort to avoid it. Other people take it a lot more seriously and try to take certain steps to minimize the amount of data collected about them. Mm-hmm. So I think I've seen both ends of that. I've seen students who immediately after we talked about it, de- quote, deleted, uh, oh, yeah. air quotes here, <laughs> yeah, right? um, their Facebook Um and maybe they've moved on to other things like Instagram or so forth. But I think one thing that we have to consider is that even if you're not using social media, if you're on the web at all, those same social media giants basically still know a lot about you and mm-hmm. they're selling that data. Data aggregators are still Facebook, for example, the the open graph, the like button, and so forth. Right. Um, so when people realize that, I think it, it does uh, scare them. And I think there was a recent study by, uh, I think it's called the Penn America Foundation. maybe. uh Getting that slightly off, where they looked at writers and said that journalists and others uh, who write had begun to really think twice about even researching or searching for certain topics that weren't illegal. Mm -hmm. Um, But it it has a sort of self censoring effect on people. So I do know some students that have told me uh, almost that they've become paranoid about that. And I've had others who have said, you know. I can't protect myself no matter what. So I hope that I'm just, I hope my risk is minimized.
1: I can definitely see, you know, a lot of these concerns and they're certainly the things that people ask me about as well. But, you know, when you're talking about ubiquitous computing, there are risks there. But I think there's also kind of ways that we can capitalize on it and do great things a couple of uh, weeks ago we had uh we heard about Never Alone a a game that was designed to p- perpetuate the story of the the Inupat, uh, Inupiat Inupiat mm-hmm, mm-hmm. uh, tribe in Alaska it was a video game using a new a new medium which was video games to tell a traditional story um Brett uh, you joined the commu- school of communications last year i regret that i had graduated long before you joined the team but a lot of the things that you are working on are also uh, up my alley ubiquitous computing, mobile technologies. And you actually did something similar. It almost rang that same bell of never alone because you another app that you developed was kind of telling almost lost stories of the, the Blackfeet nation. Can you tell us a little bit about that?
4: Yes, and first uh, I want to make note that none of the apps that we develop are track, tracking you. Track <laughs> you, at all. <laughs> oh, that's uh, good to know. Yeah, and that's the <laughs> difference I think with uh, grant-funded academic uh, projects compared to um, commercial, commercial, you know, capitalist-type projects <laughs> that want to uh, sell your data. And what we do, uh, we're researching the, these technologies as a way to learn how to make a better world, not to um, try to capitalize on it. Yeah. That said, the um, Blackfeet project is an interesting project in the sense that uh, 50 years ago, there was a horrible flood in Montana where, um, you know, many Blackfeet people were killed and um, even more lost their homes. And these stories were sort of lost to time and it wasn't really big. um, There wasn't much coverage about it in the mainstream media and uh there was a lot of you know despair among the tribe and this just sort of um you know was kept kept undercover or underground and until um this project began and it gave the Blackfeet a chance to tell their stories anew and process what happened to them and how they were marginalized as people and how they've never really had a channel to tell their stories before and with mobile technology it's the the um Cost to produce and distribute your stories is so small that everybody can have a voice.
0: Now I'm curious, uh, you know, given the role of technology in some of your projects, uh, it's it's sort of encouraging to encouraging the participant to uh, get their story told. And I'm I'm wondering, in the case of the the uh, the Blackfeet tribe, were they were they easy to convince to perhaps get their story told using this technology, or was it something that you had to kind of pry out of them?
4: Well, we had uh, a couple of, of the members of the research team were, were tribal members, so that was uh, an important part of it. And I think they were eager to tell their story. They mm-hmm. felt like they had had um, been closed out of that whole bigger conversation. This was a story that won the uh, Pulitzer Prize Uh for the for the Montana newspaper there, but most of that coverage was about the property loss instead of the loss of life, mm-hmm. um, and these are things these are um, wounds that were very deep in that in that uh, culture, and um, I think it's something that's been cathartic for them to get a chance to to think about it and talk about it again.
1: Mm-hmm. Now, Jennifer, I was uh, curious um, for the for all of the things that you might see I can totally imagine for example not wanting to Google something because not only might it disclose information that I don't want disclosed but now there are algorithms that say once you start looking for something maybe you want more of that and it changes the filter through which you're seeing things Um, but there is the other side of it that I really wanted to ask you about because I also like that side of it Um, because when a technology or a company has access to massive amounts of data about me it can also I believe you can tell me I'm wrong serve me in a way you know Google uh, because of its massive collection of data about me and my love and affection for its technology um, knows what I like and that I'm going to be doing a radio show. And then after this, I need to pick up, you know, hamburger at the supermarket. And now they're getting better at what's called like predictive technology. So rather than waiting for me to look up my to-do list, when I walk out of the studio, I'll have a little notification that says, don't forget the hamburger because you're leaving the radio station. I mean, does your research uh, specifically focus on um, things that we might be letting out before we're ready to fully understand the implications of it? Or are you looking at some of these perhaps possibly positive uh, implications of ubiquitous computing?
5: Absolutely. There's a lot of positives, too. In fact, one of the things that I'm really interested in right now is the, the those tensions between open data, which I'm also, as you guys know uh, mm-hmm. from encountering you a lot <laughs> in the field, um, also a huge proponent of um, – in terms of that, I think part of it has to. It's very complex. So there's the technical aspects. There's also what, what do people know? So what is it is it transparent? If you want Google to do that and you're totally fine with that, and you know who they are selling that data to, and you're fine with that, um, then I'm 100% behind that. And in fact, I enjoy many of the same things as well. I think where the problems come in is that there's often a lot of you know behind the scenes sale of the data, or you don't know the data is being collected about you. So, um, you know, we assume certain times that data will be collected, but there's many times, particularly in a a ubiquitous computing environment, where you simply have no idea what's being collected about you and what can be inferred about it. There's not a really broad societal dialogue right now about the types of inferences that can be made by the fact that you bought 40 bags of Cheetos and (laughs) 12, you know, liters of vodka last night, which I'm hopefully joking. How did you know? (laughs) You know, and, and... so that, that, there's that kind of thing. But mm. I do think one thing to tie it back also to this idea of storytelling is that there's amazing things that could be done with this data now. It's different types of data. It's data that can be used for the public good. And I think that's really uh, the heart of journalism. So if you really look at it, we still have these uh, concerns about making sure that the, the information is um, accurate, it's, it's filtered properly, it's clean, and that m- most importantly, it's interpreted well. So, um, and of course, consent is in there, too. Right, Like, we wouldn't want to just collect personal data about people without their knowledge. So, and then you can really tell stories with that in very meaningful ways. And I think that's one thing that I'm I'm really um, also beginning to look at a lot is the ways in which these types of large aggregate data can be used uh, for the public,
1: good. well, you know what comes to mind immediately is uh, quantified self. You know, mm-hmm. we're tracking ourselves. We've got pedometers. We've got all these devices that can tell me that I took seven thousand steps. I got my Pebble watch. I got my apps running on my phone. You do too, I see mm-hmm. uh, the Fitbit. Uh, the Fitbit there. Um, so, but on the other so. By collecting that data and because there is the consent, because I'm wearing the thing and I turned it on and I know what that means, I also like that I can go to a site and see a mashup of all of the places I visited in the last year. And it's actually kind of, it's almost like a work of art. Like, here's my world uh, illustrated in these geographic data points. Um, but I think, you know, consent is certainly a big part of it that people, Say that they've got companies will say you send it because you clicked accept on the terms of use but that's 300 pages long and no one actually reads them so I think that's certainly a challenge now Brett when you're looking at ubiquitous computing and its applications like that I mean uh, you're you're fortunate on the academic side that you don't need to monetize necessarily so do, do you put a lot of thought into how to, to You should be addressing that balance that you want to use this data ethically, but you might want to have a sustainable business on the other side rather than getting a grant from a a National Park Service or from the National Science Foundation. If you had to make these apps, but it it was how you made a living, I mean, uh, is that something that you struggle with?
4: I don't think I uh, was driven to this field by uh, the money. It was Mm -hmm. more the idea that this is an amazing uh, technology that has appeared and there, there are a lot of good things that can be done with it. Um, but if you let the market decide, that's not necessarily what's going to be done. Right. right. And, um, I, I think it would be very difficult to try to make a lot of money off the, the type of work I do because it's not a, it's not of a great commercial interest, but it is of, I, th- I think, great human interest. And I, I think people, uh, benefit from knowing the context of their situation and understanding the history and the stories of the past, and that helps them make sense of the future.
0: You know, I want to explore the idea of how you can sort of engage your students in participating with this technology, you know, given some of the challenges of our 21st century, uh, and, and and how do you sort of bring them into using the tools that allow them to tell stories? So when we we want to hold that thought. We'll be right back to this short break to continue our conversation with both Jennifer Winter and Brett Obergard and talk about new media and storytelling. Can you be a storyteller without a technical background? Do you need to be able to
1: write an app to tell your story? We'd, of course, love to hear your questions as well. You can give us a call at 941 or reach us from the neighborhood at 877-941-3689. We're also listening on Twitter. You are listening to Bite Marks Cafe.
5: Several
0: bills this session would add required insurance coverage for the diagnosis and care of autism. Next on Town Square, we'll look at the bills that affect families with autistic children. Our panel includes the National Autism Speaks Vice President for Government Affairs and Senator Josh Green. Join us Thursday at 5 for Town Square. There are 14,932 ways to fall on the radio. In this next hour of Radio Lab, we will bring you eight. Falling.
5: That's the next Radio Lab.
4: Saturday morning at 10, following the Splendid Table. Support for Bite Marks Cafe comes from the HPR Local Talk Show Fund, whose contributors help Hawaii Public Radio sustain and grow its locally produced talk show programming. Mahalo to the St. Andrews Schools, which includes the Priory School for Girls, the Prep for Boys, and Queen Emma Preschool.
0: Welcome back. This is Bite Marks Cafe. I'm Bert Lum.
4: And I'm
1: Ryan Ozawa. And we're here with uh, Brett Opegaard and Jennifer Sunrise Winter talking about technology and storytelling.
0: And of course, uh, right before the break, we're talking about uh, sort of this this uh, exploring the idea of of students and getting them to perhaps use these tools in this in this new age of uh, where we are where we're at in twenty fifteen about uh, you know privacy versus you know, getting out there and and trying to get as many people to use your app as possible. Of course, if you have a question and want to give us a call, that number is 941-3689 on Oahu or 877-941-3689 from the neighbor islands. So, Brett, what do you think about that? I mean, your course, uh, the one I was sort of exploring, encourages students to use some of the tools that you've created to help tell the story online. So on one hand, you want them to get out there and sort of be very... uh, um uh, I think visible about what their application or story is all about, probably they in turn want a lot of people to come in and look at what they 're developing. But then, how do you balance that or how do you talk to them through the process of balancing that you know there may be concern of privacy versus you know wanting to get as many people to use their app as possible
4: I think awareness is the key issue if they're aware of what they're doing and um and they want to have that consent to put their story out uh, can be very powerful, and Mm -hmm. I encourage them to be as open as possible, as open as they feel comfortable with. I had a student um, uh, last year who had this really interesting personal narrative about his dad, and uh, he had spent a lot of time with his dad growing up who had um, uh, a terribly debilitating disease, and it took... um, First, I took his ability to walk, and his you know, and it just basically uh, took his life at at uh, some point. But he uh, he and his dad had spent a lot of time researching one of the historical characters in uh, at, around Fort Vancouver in in Washington State. And instead of him trying to tell the antiseptic um, history, you know, from an objective viewpoint, I encouraged him to try to tell the story through his journey of finding out the information and and sharing um, how he came to that information, his interpretations of it, and I think um, that ended up making a much more powerful piece than, than would have uh, appeared otherwise.
1: Mm-hmm. Now, Brent, what are some of the tools that you do put before a student that they can use in their toolbox to, to accomplish that goal of conveying a story, of passing on a history, of making a connection with people? Um, is it something that you've built, or is it specific to a particular platform? What are these tools?
4: Well, there are many, many opportunities for people to use third-party uh, applications that are free and powerful, and you do not have to build your own system. Uh, you do not have to you have um, you know a dozen programmers working on it. So there are that those options out there, and I encourage people to start with start with that. You know, start with a program that you find interesting, whether it's Instagram or um, you know some of the storytelling programs, Seven Scenes, or there's just there's many, many programs out there. Um, in this particular case, the focus for the students, um, or what I try to put the focus on is the planning and the content, because I think that's where the real weakness in all this is right now. There are a lot of great, um, pieces of infrastructure where people can, can, uh, create wonderful stories, but storytelling is not easy and it takes a lot of work and, um, not that many people are interested in investing, you know, hundreds of hours in, in a story to just put on an app and, uh, give away for free. So there's, um, there's a different motivation there I think that needs to be tapped into and people uh, also I, I think would benefit from valuing the stories more. It's not just a commodity. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Are you, are you uh,
0: instructing your students or guiding your students toward a more sort of text-based, photo-based, video? What is it that helps them to tell the story given the multimedia choices that they might have?
4: Mobile is really interesting because it is uh, a convergent tool where all the all the different media of the past have been kind of absorbed by this one uh, interface, this one little device. And um, what we spend a lot of time talking about is the idea that look at the a- components of your story and the aspects of your story and what you want to emphasize and then what medium best reflects those. So if it's a very visual, action-oriented part of the story that you want to share that might be best on video if it's um you know a detailed analysis and you know deep contemplation there might be better for a textual uh c- component mm-hmm. and so the medium really um has what we call affordances and constraints and those affordances are the things that allows you to do that other um, media forms don't and the constraints are things that keep you from from doing things like you wouldn't necessarily want to have a lengthy analytical report in video form
1: mm-hmm. now how about you uh jennifer in your courses and your students i mean what are the what are the the tools that you're putting before them when they're putting together a project and i i'm actually mm-hmm. ju- just as brett had shared i'm wondering if you have any examples as well of this this intersection where now you have either mobile devices or web pages and uh you know wordpress
5: that they can harness to to get something done Well, in my capstones, uh, it's pretty broad. So many of them are doing traditional research papers or policy studies. We do have a number of mixed media, and typically uh, we'll work with the student just to find the right resources that they need. Um, Along the lines of what Brett said, there's a lot of things that are online that they can use. The other thing that we really want to focus on, too, though, I think, uh, as a tool, really has to do with the, um, the data literacies. So something that we really focus on uh, in our programs is is helping students to understand not only when they're searching for literature and so forth, but when they're looking at the data that they're going to use to be able to actually critique that. And so some of our students will use things like SPSS, uh, the statistical program. Mm -hmm. Um, We're trying to get some of our students to learn things like R, which is a great great tool for um, data analysis and so forth. So um, in my particular classes, those are, are more along the lines
0: that we do. I don't actually mm. teach uh, classes that are multimedia I typically. Yeah. You know, uh, we've got a question on Twitter from uh, Nick, and he says, how might museums use
4: storytelling tech to facilitate a connection between visitors and collections? Brett? Brett? There have been a lot of studies in museums, and, in fact, I think the museum... Um maybe the first wave was were involved the artists, but the second wave of people interested in mobile technology uh typically came from the museums and how they can engage their visitors in different ways because the static model of having a uh a bunch of text on a wall and, you know, uh it just it, it just um did not provide the motivation that they expected. In fact there were studies um, that I've read about the expectation of how long people would sit at a museum exhibit versus the reality of how long they spent at it, and it you know was something in the neighborhood of you know one percent of the time or mm-hmm. you know very small percent of the time. Mm-hmm. So uh, museums have been very innovative, uh, particularly in San Francisco. The Exploratorium, I think, is uh, one um the the new york museum's have been really um in investigating mobile technology in a lot of ways so there've been a lot of work there and i think um my my research is essentially taking that work and putting it outside in some of our nation's uh, treasures in the national parks Yellowstone and other places. Mm-hmm. Well, now, Brett, I've been I've been dying to ask
1: you this specific question. I blogged about your app. I thought the potential was fantastic, but of course, a lot of the work you've done was based from uh, prior to your moving to Hawaii, which your with your work in Washington State, Yellowstone, Montana, and such like that. But you are now in Hawaii with its own collection of national parks, with his own collection of cultural histories and stories to tell. Um, Nick, we know, actually, he works at Bishop Museum. He's trying to be very innovative with uh, engaging the community and telling the stories of their exhibits. So uh, can we look forward to the Brett Opigard app machine um, turning some of its talents and skills to stories and museums and exhibits here in Hawaii?
4: Oh, absolutely. This is uh, There are wonderful opportunities here. In fact, we've talked to uh, several of the parks already, um, and we're working on a, on a national audio description project where we bring um, basically the analog material from brochures in national parks into audio forms and MP3s for visually impaired or blind people. And as part of that uh, particular project, we are planning to work with one uh Local park, and uh, I, like I said, we've been in contact with several others. So it just depends on, um, you know, what we can pull off.
0: You know, I was uh, noticing the, I guess, the adoption of technology in particularly the Honolulu Museum, what previously known as the Academy of Arts. But uh, you know, back probably ten, fifteen years ago, you go to the museum and you can't take any photographs. And then, and then, more recently, probably over the last uh, maybe. Five years, uh, there was uh, there were some some um, um, QR codes that were strategically placed next to pieces that you could, you know, whip out your smartphone and get some information about that piece. And then more recently, I was over there uh, on Super Bowl Sunday uh, checking out some of the, the the Japanese woodblock prints, and you could take pictures. It was uh, it was okay to take pictures, and you could post them up on. And of course, they're they're uh, they're. Um, um, Friday events, the first Friday events, uh, you know, they get everybody in there and everybody's having a party and taking pictures. So I think there's uh, uh, a more openness about uh, getting people to come to the museums and and actually take pictures, share those pictures, put them up on Instagram, you know, do all, you know, sort of share their experience to get more people to come to the museum. So I would I would imagine that. The embrace of technology is 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 becoming more and more um, accepted in in museums.
4: In the beginning, I think there was a, a great concern by the um, museum curators, probably uh, about the diminishment of the original artwork and how mm-hmm. if if you took a bad um, cell phone photo and put it on your social media channel people would think oh this is uh you know not that great or, or not they that wouldn't have to go themselves or they wouldn't have to go themselves you know, there's a big concern with that and uh, i've actually been in some museums where you know security guards have come up to me and said you know put that phone away or some you know things like that so and that was not that long ago mm-hmm. <laughs> so i think there's still some some residual uh, fear of that on the other hand i think they get an incredible marketing um opportunity there where people can say, hey, I had a really fun time going to see this piece of art and you should see it too. So I think that outweighs the uh, the fear that they might lose an audience. I think they're gaining new audiences and the more they share it, the better off they'll be. But, um, you know, that's, I guess, for them to decide.
1: Mm-hmm. Jennifer, do you have any thoughts on that? I mean, I, or, or I, I, can really res- I can really understand that fear, which is if your work is digitally re- reproducible, then what's the value of it? And does that diminish the... Uh, in the the motivation to create.
5: I think it comes back to the idea that uh, of, en- of really trying to engage and making people part of that process. So last year when I went to the British Museum, I had to ask three times to make sure I could take photos. But then I went back every day and I did take a lot of photos and I really enjoyed that and I really felt a part of that experience as a result of it. And I shared those photos. Um, and I talked a lot more about it, probably as a result. Of if I had just gone for that one afternoon and been gingerly tiptoeing around.
0: Um, so was it was it a more open environment in in uh, in Europe to to take photos? I I, I get the you know mm. the limited exposure that I've had is that uh, you know they're they're a little bit more into this whole open glam of so the open galleries, libraries, uh, archives, and museums and. You know, taking pictures inside museums wasn't you know wasn't a taboo
5: there's some exhibits when we were there um, they had a pompeii exhibit for example where i'm sure that the camera flash could probably damage the artifacts so i guess i'm not sure if technology has changed or if they've just realized that maybe it's not as damaging or if maybe well, they're using you? different shields well on with the our with our iphone artworks. 6s now you can
0: take pretty <laughs> yeah. uh, pretty low light uh, photos and yeah. they come out really good. And I think uh, to that point, yeah, f- uh, flash mm-hmm. photography is still not accepted. In well, the you know,
1: all I can say is I recently took a long trip to New York and seeing all the museums was on our list and the ones that got dropped off the list were the ones that didn't let you take pictures. Mm-hmm. You know, like, oh, frick, they don't want you to do that. That never, I'm not going to go there. But the, the Museum of natural history, they're okay with it. So that's where I'm going to go. And I think mm-hmm. I, I can totally see that being a an issue. Mm-hmm. Now, Brett, let's, let's look forward very briefly. Um, what's the next technology? Apps, I can see your doing that's exciting it's where everything is moving forget the web let's go to apps but what's that next generation is it virtual reality augmented reality uh, is it that i mean where do you think it'll go next
4: i'm not a futurist (laughs) 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 and i would not make a very good living being a futurist but uh it seems to me that where we're headed and where my research is headed is, is into more invisible technologies and um like even now we're working on smartphone and tablet computer apps with an eye for migrating that material to wearable computing, uh-huh, yeah. eyeglasses. And then eventually, um, who knows, there there are some researchers at the University of Washington who have created a very interesting set of uh, contact lenses that have computers inside them. So oh, yeah. get you them won't even, the- you won't even be able to see the eyeglass and... Um, I suspect that's where it'll head. I don't know how long. It's always, you know, the five years out window, but um, <laughs> it may be 10, 20 years, but I think it'll eventually uh, start to become invisible oh, and, like um, and become more and more powerful. Your Jennifer? thoughts, Jennifer?
5: Well, I absolutely agree. And, and something else, I think behind the scenes there's a lot of things happening, uh, again, back to data again. Um, essentially, what we're looking at now is things like linked data. So the machine-to-machine mm-hmm. communication that's happening is something that's often really overlooked. Um, so there's h- just huge amounts of data and h- many analytics and things happening to them. And the web itself is beginning to you know, do things. I'm, again, using air quotes there. But um, in some ways, it's a little eerie. In some ways, it's fantastic, as Ryan mentioned earlier. So um, I think that's something that I'd like to look at behind, uh, look a little uh, more behind uh, the scenes because uh, many people just don't see that. Uh, but they can see signs of it emerging when they're using the web now, and it, it seems sort of like magic. But there's a lot that's happened just in the last couple of years, and certainly the next three to five years, I think, are going to be uh, even more impressive. Well, we'll regard. definitely uh, put yeah. up
0: some links to connect, them, connect our audience to the work that you're doing. Jennifer Winter is an associate professor over at UH, and uh, Brett Opegaard is an assistant professor. They're both in the UH College of Social Science, and we want to thank you both for joining us today. Thank you very much. Thank you, guys.
1: And thank you for listening to Bite Marks Cafe. Join us next week when we'll talk about Small Business Innovation Research, or SBIR, grants.
0: And if you miss any part of this edition, you can find the podcast of tonight's show on bitemarkscafe.org. And if you have any comments or suggestions, email us at feedback at And of course... You can find us on Twitter. I'm at BiteMarks. You can
1: follow me at Hawaii. Our engineer is David Chong, and our executive producer is Beth Ann Koslovich.
0: And we leave you with our song pick of the week. Here's a band called Springtime Carnivore and a song called Sun Went Black. See you next week on another edition of Bite Mark's Cafe.